0: Hello, this is Samuel from the back page. We're taking a week off this week, but we didn't want to leave our free feed listeners hanging. So we're pleased to present episode one of our previously patron-exclusive miniseries, PC Gaming Classics, hosted by Jeremy Peel, sometime guest on the show, and Phil Awanyuk, a former colleague of myself and Matthew's. So we hope you enjoy this first episode, which is all about System Shock 2. We'll roll out all six episodes of this miniseries on the free feed in the coming months. And uh, thanks so much to our patrons for bringing it to life. We hope you enjoy. In the meantime, if you can't get enough of us and you'd like to support us, patreon.com slash backpage pod. We've just uploaded the best Mario moments. So we'll be back with a regular episode next Friday. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this mini series.
1: And welcome to the first of a series of six Backpage Podcast specials. This is a podcast about 90s PC gaming that we're calling the Backer Page Podcast because it exists purely due to the kindness and generosity of you lot on Patreon. Uh, I am Phil and With me is Jeremy Peel. Hello, Jeremy.
0: Hello, Phil. Hello, everyone.
1: Uh, Jeremy is a familiar voice to uh, Backpage Podcast long-time listeners. Jeremy, you've spoken about all sorts with Samuel and Matthew before, haven't you? Immersive Sims, Drive Three R—is that? Am I getting that right? Drive Three
0: R. I think you know you're not, but yeah, I'm (laughs) I'm the guy who shows up on the podcast and just um, splurges uh, an unnerving amount of information about driver all in one breath, and then leaves again. That's been me.
1: I wonder if you'll manage to cram it into this episode. So this. First uh, episode in the series of six, all focusing on classic 90s PC games, is all about the venerable immersive sim slash shooter RPG thingy from Irrational Games and Looking Glass Studios' System Shock 2. Uh, I'm so excited to talk about this one. I went downstairs to make um, one of the more atmospheric cups of coffee in my life, Jeremy, just now, uh, because I was listening to the System Shock 2 soundtrack as I did so. And it's quite early in the... M- well, it's half eight now, but when I was making the coffee, it was quite early. And my <laughs> goodness, that was tense. What a soundtrack.
0: Yeah, and it goes. we were saying it goes surprisingly hard, doesn't it, that soundtrack? You've got the sort of like the dense, the thick ambience, and then you also have uh, full-on big beats. It's, yeah, it's like Liam Howlett from
1: Prodigy's uh, been been at the desk on it. Um, I should say how who it's actually composed by, actually. Uh, it's Josh Randall, Ramin Jawadi, and Eric Brozius. Um,
0: yeah, Brozius, in fact. I know how to pronounce that now. But yeah, oh, I'm sorry. terribly
1: sorry. Yeah, I, I recognised Brozius' name.
0: Yeah, he was like the lead um, sound guy on this, and, and also on Thief. That's really why I know his name then.
1: And that's why, Jeremy, you're here, to, <laughs> just, like a driving instructor, to just politely pull the wheel away from the curb. <laughs> <laughs> Um so let's uh let's begin by introducing ourselves um and talking a little bit about why we're doing this and why 90s PC gaming is is worthy of comment 20 30 mm. years on in the first place. Um so Jamie tell us a little bit about yourself how you got started in the industry and what your idiosyncrasies are in in gaming.
0: Crikey. I'm a freelance games journalist going on about 10 years, I was thinking of how I could um, date that, other than with actual dates, obviously. But uh, Dishonored and the XCOM reboot were kind of the significant games for me when I started. You know, within like a year of me starting, they happened and uh, and were a big deal for me. And are also, you know, connected to the, the games we're going to be talking about across the course of this series. You know, there's, they have their roots in this stuff. Um Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I uh, I started at a site called PC Games N, and um, at this point, you know, I've I've got to write for PC Gamer and Edge and Rock Paper Shotgun and all of my favourite uh, games outlets. Really, uh, yeah. Who are you, Phil?
1: <laughs> I think you know very well. Um... I do. I am. I think of myself as sort of a grey man of the games industry because I've been around quite a long time. You've probably not heard of me, but you might have read some stuff that I've written over the years. Um, I got my start. To to date, my debut, my first commission, I think, uh, was for PC Format magazine, and it was a review of Dragon Age Origins. So, what was that? Two thousand and eight. Very late two thousand eight. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. Um. Got that one bang on. I think I gave it like eighty-seven percent, which like obviously yeah. correct. Uh, and then uh, when I first got like my staff job in the games industry, that like, I was freelancing for a bit, and uh, so I was given the Dragon Age Two review as my first gig as a staff writer. And uh, I'm I'm not the top on Metacritic. I'm, I'm not the highest review score, <laughs> only because PC Gamer went one percent higher. But I did give it ninety-four. So, maybe maybe that's what people know me for, <laughs> for absolutely messing up the the Dragon
0: Age 2 review. Yeah, um, I do think PC Gamer, you know, taking a little of the heat off you there, people still bring that up in their mentions. I know, it's only 1% as well. That mm. w-
1: Between the two of us, we must have, like, been responsible for some massive bonuses at Bioware, because without <laughs> us, that average Meta School would be, like, in the 70s, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so other than taking a bung for the Dragon Age 2 review, uh, what else did I do? I went from uh, PC Format Magazine on to Official PlayStation Mag, where I was there for for a few years. Then I went over to PC Games End, where I met Jeremy Peel. Um, The two of us spent a long time uh, talking about Quake, when we should have been talking about um, Minecraft or Roblox or whatever was trending on search at the time. Uh, Then I went
0: freelance. Yeah, you uh, you were my features editor when I was a features writer and a very... A very I was very fortunate to have you as a, a manager and you were uh you know, I felt like I was often writing to to um f- to make you laugh. And it's it's always helpful to have that as a writer, to have a specific mate in mind that you wanna entertain. It was a,
1: a humiliating experience for me, Jeremy, if I'm honest, because uh I was supposed to be managing you but you were just so far ahead on, on top of it all. <laughs> You were you were reminding me of the spreadsheets that I needed to ask you to update, and, <laughs> and your your work just needed absolutely nothing nothing doing to it. I was like, oh Jesus Christ, this guy's uh, amazing, and I can teach him nothing. But it did uh, oh, foster uh, a, a long time friendship uh, and a safe space where we could talk about like Trent Reznor's uh, production idiosyncrasies and and the medieval imagery of Quake and things like that. So really, yeah. this is like the perfect place for us to just. Uh, be chatting nonsense about about 90s stuff because it's really where our our venn diagrams overlap whilst i'm not like the biggest driver three fan i can certainly respect the fact that it's a (laughs) it's an older title with a a, quite a niche audience and that's where we (laughs) both choose to uh that's not
0: even faint praise that's just that's just (laughs) facts i can certainly respect the fact that it's a game that came out in the past
1: uh, yeah, these are these are factual things. It's very hard to debate them. Uh, so that's a little bit about us and why we're uh, fixated on, on 90s PC gaming. I always think, Jeremy, you know when you're listening to a podcast that you really like, but the regular hosts are like away on holiday or whatever, like if, if it's the film programme mm. with Mark Kermode and, and Simon Mayo, and then you listen to the latest episode and it's like Robbie Colin and Edith Bowman, and you're like... Oh. Like yeah. I mean, they're great. No, no disrespect to those like very trusted uh, and esteemed broadcasters, but you're like, oh, well, where's the people that I, um, that I wanted to listen to and that I choose to listen to this podcast for? Um, I'm hoping that just lo- knowing a little bit about the sort of our our uh, our CVs, <laughs> a painstaking detail about the jobs that we've hopped between, uh, might mitigate that just
0: slightly. Yeah, I'm glad you were, you turned that sentence around. Uh, the midway part as was worried you were just going to be talking as out of a gig <laughs> yeah, i absolutely understand
1: if you don't want to listen um all the very best go and Go <laughs> uh so that's a little bit about uh who we are and uh, forensic detail about where we've worked what was your salary during all of those jobs i'll go through mine <laughs> <laughs> no, so but that's that's the details about who we are um but why we're obsessed with with '90s PC gaming is a different matter, uh, mm. Jeremy. Why is this a special period to you?
0: I think um, you know, as I kind of touched on with the Dishonored and and the Excom reboot, this is a period where a lot of the seeds were planted for my favourite genres. It was a time where tech was advancing at an almost alarming rate, and uh, it felt like a new And revolutionary idea was was happening, at least once a year, and um, yeah, the 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 games that we'll be talking about in this series, they, you can see their influence today everywhere. Um, But because it was also a period of huge kind of experimentation, I think they will all reveal themselves to have like fascinating dead ends as well. You know, things that weren't picked up which. We're going to uncover and and, uh, and and kind of point to the the cool stuff that was left behind. But yeah, there's so much of that in this period. What do you reckon?
1: Absolutely, it, I think we're in a really privileged position because the sort of nostalgia that we can indulge in now is so much deeper than uh, previous generations. Right. So, whereas like our parents might listen to records that take them back to their youth, we've got these entire virtual worlds. That are so much more immersive and fleshed out, and they come with a soundtrack, and the music itself is like massive nostalgia hit. But it's also attached to like an explorable environment full of full of like characters that you remember and specific experiences that uh, that you remember doing. So it's just like a, a mind blowing level of uh, time capsule. And I think yeah. you're absolutely right that the '90s was a uh, Genuinely and sort of empirically a really special time for game development. I think the pace of innovation that you mentioned there was crucial in that it brought in the best and brightest minds in tech. I always think about people like Demis Hassabis, who worked uh, with Peter Molyneux um, on Dungeon Keeper and then Black and White during Mm -hmm. this period. Black and White slightly out of our remit. 2001 it was released. But Demis Hassabis went on. like He was a, a junior chess prodigy an actual genius went on to found uh, what became Google DeepMind. He will be running the world at some point. And in the nineties he was fiddling around with, with PC games because that's where like the greatest chance to innovate was happening. Um, yeah. so I, I, think even aside from all our misty eyed nostalgia, that, that really was uh, kind of a once in a lifetime moment for, for tech and for entertainment. Uh, probably just like really quickly worth mentioning the caveat on this like as great as the 90s were um in gaming for like for most of us I I guess we should also acknowledge that like this wasn't the most inclusive time this wasn't the most like progressive uh time and if you weren't like a white teenage boy then maybe there was a danger of feeling a bit alienated like certainly women's representation in, in games has come a really long way since the 90s uh non-white characters uh non-binary characters like it was a completely different landscape so just wanted to like throw that in before we spend the next two hours <laughs> yeah. regaling uh, in in this era um yeah
0: it'll be interesting to see how that comes up in in these games i think in system yeah. shock Two's case it's uh in the main that there are very few female parts in the cast that's the main one i'd point out there
1: yeah equally i don't think it's uh quite right to condemn games from this period uh on those grounds is it because it, it was a reflection of the culture i think we can maybe like um judge the culture but the the developers are responding to to where the where the culture was and where they thought the the dollars were it's it's interesting i was Going through some like original design docs for some games back in the nineties, like without naming names. And the way that they the language that they use when they talk about the player is always a he. It's just always Mm. assumed that like why would a woman be playing (laughs) be playing this game? That's unthinkable. Um, Uh like he will be having a badass time with our new super violent mechanics. Um,
0: Uh I interviewed developers in the twenty tens who did that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, me too. We,
1: we've we've come a long way, haven't we? So I thought that was worth throwing in, uh, just just to sort of paint the picture. Like, that, that, although this is a deeply nostalgic time and there was a lot of special stuff happening, uh, the '90s weren't perfect, and the uh, the cultural material that it threw up reflects the fact that it wasn't perfect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, time capsule, and um, it's worth mentioning that you have. Effectively, a literal time capsule for this uh, at your disposal for this series—a nineteen ninety eight rig. Is that right?
1: I'm really glad you brought this up because this is my favourite thing in the entire world. Yeah, I've spent the last five years sourcing uh, the exact model of my very first PC, which I got in nineteen ninety eight. It's a Packard Bell uh, Platinum three hundred and fifty. If anybody's interested, um, and and that's where I play my classic games now. And it's so much better, speaking personally, it's so much more of that nostalgia hit to be, like, starting these games from Windows 98 and just Mm. listening to, like, the floppy drive booting up when you turn the PC on. I don't know, like, for me, that's... The, that would be the reason why i would play system shock 2 not just as you know for a quite a cold hearted forensic analysis of like oh, how did this inform dishonored and it's it's more about like i want to feel like i'm in 1999 and i'm a teenager and i've got no worries in the world other than how to beat showdown yeah so playing it in this environment just absolutely heightens it so that's where i'll be playing uh all the games that we feature in this series yeah. uh and there's a lot
0: there for you to unpack in therapy, but it's all <laughs> to, to the benefit of Backpage listeners at this point. Exactly. and you know, The nice thing about it is that it's, it's a relatively cheap,
1: debilitating hobby to source these <laughs> things. I know Samuel's got like a real eBay thing going on with uh, with pre-owned games. Um, mm. And I guess this is just an extension of it. with looking for the, the beige ephemera that goes with uh, pre-owned games.
0: Yeah. Was it beige when it started? I always I always try and remember this about how beige the pieces were at the time because they, they got more beige over time, right? With they're very
1: beige now, yeah, yeah. They're um they're like Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast sort of beige. Whereas they began <laughs> slightly just off white. Um you can actually like home brew a bleachy substance called Retro Bright, which uh which you like slather all over your beige parts and <laughs> um, that's a good little sound but, <laughs> so and, and then like put it under uv light and then it will restore it to its off-white form of glory but it's quite risky because it's like really strong peroxide so i haven't Come gone off, that far yet, but, yeah if anybody was, does have I was, any i
0: was better off not knowing about that
1: probably yeah if anybody does have any like old um pc parts from from this era then yeah look into retro at your own peril Um, the back of page accepts no responsibility for damages incurred due to using (laughs) Retrobrite. So, Jeremy, I think that's the intro done, isn't it? Um, Yeah. Would you like to stretch your legs, have an atmospheric cup of coffee listening to Big Beats, and then reconvene to talk about System Shock 2?
0: Yeah, I'm going to go and crouch walk around the house with a wrench for a bit.
1: (laughs) I'm going to just plug in like a weird ball into my wrist and wander around brandishing it.
0: Good luck with that.
1: That's a tough joke. All right, we'll uh, we'll be back momentarily to talk System Shock 2. coffee that was more uh shrieking ape like um monsters during a coffee run than i'm used to jeremy but i did enjoy the big beats how did you get on
0: yeah um i was uh practicing my side power so i've got a nosebleed but uh otherwise all good
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh so it's it's about time we actually talked about uh about system shook to in, in a bit more detail um So, first of all, let's try to get to the bottom of what it meant at the time when it came out. What are your first recollections of this game? How did you first hear about it? Um, And what was your impression?
0: So, I was pretty young in the 90s. You know, a lot of this stuff I came to slightly later. And the first time I was aware of System Shock 2 was, I think... Seeing it on the shelf, um, uh, my mate's dad's shelf in his house. So a, <laughs> a very good friend at school, uh, and I think honestly, I was, um, his his dad was was as I was as excited to see his dad as I was my mate because he was uh, a long time PC gamer. They they were kind of aspirational to me as a family, actually, a, a PC gaming family. Uh, my friend's mum and dad, they'd kind of. Uh, you know, played Ultima online together in their youth. And then, um, you know, they had two phone lines so that they could play oh, wow. EverQuest and still receive calls uh, because he, he oh, was a doctor. That was goals, wasn't God. it?
1: That was absolute goals in the 90s.
0: Yeah. And and he had the most incredible shelf of big box PC games, like um, games that we'll be discussing in this series. Fallout was on there. XCOM was on there a slightly dodgier XCOM immediate sequel about underwater stuff. And um, (laughs) System Shock 2 was on there. And uh, I remember one time he let me borrow it. Um, But then I was surprised by how quickly he asked for it back. And I didn't even get a chance to beat it up. (laughs) So I I then didn't play System Shock 2 for for many years. Um, (laughs) But I was aware, you know, I mean, you're going to covet something, aren't you? If you if it's kind of, uh, you know, you, you you get to own it for a couple of weeks and then have to give it back. Like, oh God, Snatched away I'll, from me. I missed you. something so, there.
1: What was it about it that made you want to borrow it in the first place? Was it the box? Was it
0: Showdown on the on the box art? The box was good, and I was aware of the connection to um, stuff like Thief from Looking Glass. Uh, you know, I, I was I was already into the kind of um, the uh, the budget games display at Asda, where you could get those, you know, um, sold out or explosive or PC Gamer presents those brands were for for a fiver. You could get uh, Thief Two or Deus Ex, and you know w- what an introduction that is. Your Asda was a lot Gamer. better
1: than mine, mate. My ass! They just had like discount pork in it. We didn't have a seminal <laughs> PC titles on a little plinth for a fiver. My goodness! It wasn't a plinth. It was, plinth, shirts it was a... by George and things.
0: Yeah, it was one of those spinny, um, spinny stands. Sure,
1: sure. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what you call those. I used to work in a supermarket as well back in the day. I should know that. Yeah. Um, that's probably, not really what this podcast is about, is it? No. Well, the plinth is more the end of the aisle, right? That would be where you put all the all the mince, your seasonal meats and things. I work more on the meat aisle. Yeah, um, I
0: think, think we're know, a little off track.
1: You... <laughs> 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 um, what year was this when you uh, when you were going round to your friend's house and and you saw this uh, remarkable big box game and it caught your eye? It was like a guess. few years after the fact, right?
0: Oh uh, yeah, like maybe two thousand and three or okay, uh, so that's yeah, that know. kind of time yeah um for for
1: me my introduction was through pc gamer magazine like so many other like seminal titles in my uh life really uh pc gamer was just like the, the absolute north star uh so i remember the review it was a oh it was i want to say 92 percent but certainly in the 90s and that always turned mm. your head right if if something was getting like Above an 85, you're like, these guys are serious about this. Yeah. Um, from memory, I don't think it was a Kieran Gillen review. And that seems that seems mad to me. I don't know why it wouldn't be, right? Because Kieran was such a looking glass, irrational head, to use back page vernacular, um, that like, retrospectively, if you were the editor of PC Gamer at the time and System Shock 2 comes in, you'd definitely give it to Kieran. I might be wrong about that. Maybe it was him that reviewed it. Hello everyone, uh, Phil here from the the future. Um, I'm just editing the podcast and to be honest that was playing on my mind the whole time after I said it, that I didn't think Kieran did review it. So I pulled out the old um, issue of PC Gamer that I was referring to, um, November 1999. It's the one with uh, Rogue Spear on the cover, if anyone remembers it. And lovely silver treatment on it as well. Anyway, I skipped to the, um, the review of System Shock 2. And Kieran did review it. Of course he reviewed it. Of course he did. A fine review of it, it was as well. So um, apologies, Kieran. Apologies, everybody who was uh, furrowing their brows and going, that sounds wrong, as I was saying that. Um, And please enjoy the next two or three minutes of me insisting that Kieran Gillen did not review System Shock 2. Also keep an eye out for um, Jeremy just not really wanting to commit to the idea and instead steering me very gracefully into a more broad conversation about how review assignments work and how writers are picked for it and me just not picking up on it and doubling down and going, but why wasn't Kieran given the System Shock 2 review? And of course he was. Um, Apologies and thank you.
0: Yeah, Kieran's Deus Ex review is the earliest one that I talked about. I, I wonder if he was still kind of getting his feet under the table and his uh, taste established at that time. But I don't then again, know. I think he reviewed Thief. Oh so wow, that's ninety eight. Okay. I, I mean, it does happen that way at an outlet, doesn't it? You kind of uh, it takes a while for you to kind of um, feel out your space and for editors to know what it is that you're kind of best uh, assigned to. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's true of most
1: of us. I feel like Kieran came in with a kind of rock star energy that uh, that meant that he didn't have to do that, and he just <laughs> just immediately <laughs> sure. got given the reviews that uh, that he wanted to write. Um, but I, once again, we're going slightly off topic and into the into the minutiae of PC gamer circa nineteen ninety nine. But Kieran, if you are listening or anybody from the team at that time, please do correct me um, as to who. Uh, wrote that review it was a great review though, because it got me super excited about the game it was this was still sort of the era where every one to two years there would be a new best game ever yeah probably starting with uh quake uh previously like the landscape was dominated by doom and then quake came along and it was such a jump forward and so all the games mags got on it and you know all the covers were sort of like this is the doom killer say goodbye to to sprites quakes here and then a couple of years after that, it would be like, Quake 2's here, it shit's all over Quake, throw out your copy of Quake, stamp on it, do a poo on it. And then Unreal turned up and like the graphics were a bit better. So it's like, all right, send your copy of Quake 2 out to like the furthest reaches of Earth, you'll never need to play it again. And then a year after that, Half-Life comes out and it was just this incredible laddering up of, uh, of best games ever. Yeah. And I think the point when System Shock 2 hit, because it wasn't a thoroughbred shooter... That conversation had just slightly changed. And also, we were still in Half-Life's wake. We were only we were less than a year away from uh further down the line from Half-Life's release in like November ninety-eight. Yeah. So it wasn't quite that sort of buzz. This was more like the thinking person's not that Half-Life's a big dumb shooter, but it's like, oh, there's RPG elements to it. Um it's a bit more atmospheric, maybe a little bit slower paced. There's an inventory to manage. So the messaging was very much like uh, this is fantastic, but it's not necessarily like the new best game ever. It's not necessarily a cover game, even. It's just this, like if you if you are in the know, if you like big beats and cyber monkeys, uh, then this is like this is the new essential thing to have.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Looking Glass have been running in a sort of strange parallel to to the dooms and the quakes of of, of the period, haven't they? They'd you know they'd had the first System Shark and and Thief and rather than kind of build these engines which were purely dedicated to speed. Uh, You know, that's what what id Software and and John Carmack was all about. They were building these kind of slightly slower um, worlds that were stuffed with, you know, tons of objects that you could pick up and chuck around, basic physics, um, slower and kind of uh, heavier tone as well. So slightly more of an acquired taste. Uh, but, you know, for those of us who connected with it, then it, it kind of became the thing to chase.
1: The tone was definitely an important part of it, wasn't it? I remember it feeling very grown up to me. So I, I would have been uh, 13 when this game came out. Mm. And so I think that's probably the perfect age for System Shock 2 because you're like genuinely impressed by the maturity of the tone in its, uh, in the voice logs and things and a, a slightly more grown-up sci-fi style story. Yeah. Um, we should also say, obviously, this is a, a sequel to System Shock. I had very little um, understanding or appreciation of System Shock when the sequel came about because because i was a 13 year old boy and i'd only just got a pc so i just wasn't aware of like the pc's great uh songbook at that stage and also in the 90s it was really really difficult to play games from even six months ago right like yeah let alone oh, yeah. N- a number of years and uh, like several operating systems ago so at that point in 99 playing system shock would have been such a an incredible undertaking.
0: Yeah, it already <laughs> looked about like, ancient history like it was pre-Mouse Look and, and First Person Controls as we already understood them by the late 90s. Um, it released on the boundary of floppy disks and CDs, which didn't help either. You know, a bunch of people played System Shock, the first one, uh text only, like the the um the voices for the audio logs and stuff that only came in several months later um with the cd version so there are all these kind of things that made it anachronistic already yeah i think the
1: the major thing that carried through other than the like the particular um strain of sci-fi um and the the idea of being sort of uh lost and surviving on a on an abandoned space station was the the adversarial uh like tete-a-tete with an ai right like that's the central idea in both of these games and just like i guess a little bit of backstory um like who you are and what you're doing on here so you wake up uh from a cryo tube on a space station called the von braun at the beginning of system shock 2 having completed what i fondly remember as an excellent tutorial I couldn't tell you why, but I just remember loving every second of the tutorial. I think you choose your, uh, your sort of. There are three very basic RPG style classes, aren't they? And you choose that at tutorial level. It
0: is cool. It's like um, it's all in universe. So you you start. You're joining as um, as uh, kind of navy or sort of military support for this assume research mission. Uh, I think the Rickenbacker is the name of the the military ship that kind of docks onto the side of the von Braun, and that's how, how you get there but yeah in in the training sequence, you kind of there's a tiny little kind of human human Earth Street that you get to walk across and you know you get to see <laughs> some of the kind of the billboards of the future and whatnot, and then you you head through different doors to kind of choose your path through your early career. That's as a right. soldier yeah. and kind of potential psionics operative and and you get little sort of text descriptions of of what you've been up to and then you finally emerge onto the the von Braun
1: those the names of those ships are just etched into my brain forever as well I'm not sure why but the Rickenbacker and the von Braun I don't usually pay attention to to sci-fi ship names because there's like how many sci-fi ships have you been like abandoned on and fighting for your life on at this point like maybe four thousand Um but it's testament to the writing of system shock 2 that uh there's a really strong sense of place to um to to both of those ships but you wake up on the von Braun after completing that uh famously fantastic tutorial in which you walk down a human street and choose one of three classes (laughs) um and then you're briefed in a similar way, if, you know, Bioshock obviously uh, took a lot of this DNA, a similar way to Bioshock when, when Atlas is sort of like filling you in on what's been going on in this new environment that you're suddenly part of. Um, you're immediately uh, getting like voice comes through from Dr. Janice Polito, um, who's basically letting you know that you're in a, in a really bad way <laughs> everything's yeah. gone to to absolute heck on the von Braun um and she's sort of guiding you towards her so that you can uh, the two of you can survive this thing but of course there's a rogue AI element uh making things extremely difficult for you that's the basic premise right I don't want to get too far sure down that path quite yet um
0: you know, Shodan has an interesting role in, in this one. Like, in the first game, she is she is pure antagonist. This one, I guess, she's more of, um, you know, the Hannibal Lecter of, of Silence of the Lambs. She's kind of off to the side. The the, the main threat that you initially come up against is uh, the many. So these are kind of Shodan's uh, creepy, organic children who... Uh, in the first game who've kind of broken free and, and gone their own way and, uh, you know, infecting the brains of the um, of the crew on the ship, creating sort of zombie-like creatures, horrible little mind worms squ- squirreling away on the floor. Um, there are also some monkeys. Um, <laughs> I think they're unrelated. Um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a, you know, there's an interesting sort of dynamic going on there where you know nobody mistaking nobody's mistaking showdown for um for a force for good but there's you know an uneasy alliance that develops during the the game
1: i think the way that is presented in the game is that it's quite uh it's almost like a twist that you're dealing with showdown right yeah as as i recall it at the time games mags did not care about that at all and like (laughs) (laughs) had definitely spoiled that element for me long before i got to play the game yeah um i think everybody was just too excited yeah well apologies i mean do let us know if you haven't played system shock 2 and and you're listening to this podcast i'd be i'd be fascinated uh to hear from people who who haven't played it yet uh but also apologies for spoiling system shock 2 for you um I don't think it's essential to the enjoyment of the game. No, it's uh, not. to to not know that, but um yeah, we as we've touched upon like we've sort of spoken a little bit about this game's lineage, but let's make it explicit. This is developed by Irrational Games and Looking Glass Studios. Um so this is the same studio who put together Thief just a year <coughs> before. Uh Ken Levine was the lead designer on this game. Uh as a thirteen year old boy, I didn't know who Ken Levine was. I didn't really understand how developers and publishers worked. I didn't know to like um, you know, look out for studio names as a marker of quality. I really was just going on PC gamers review scores. Yeah later you, at that, on. At
0: that stage, you don't really know what the difference between a developer and a publisher is. You're like, oh yeah, Activision. Love those guys. <laughs> yeah. um, I was yeah.
1: super into Sierra because of Half-Life. I was like, well. If they can put out something as good as Half Life, then oh, I'm sure Gabriel Knight Three is an absolute Sierra. banger. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean nobody knew who Ken Levine was at that stage, did they? Like,
1: uh, certainly that's my interpretation of it. Yeah, this was the game that forged his reputation as an individual name. Yeah, that so... like with stands on its own two feet, even even adjacent to Irrational Games or Looking
0: Glass. Yeah, he'd started at Looking Glass after um, some years in the wilderness as a you know, budding screenwriter and and this kind of thing, and uh, he'd been on pre-production on Thief, and had you know, after some some weird concepts around that time at Looking Glass that he he had a hand in like uh, Better Red Than Dead, was uh was one of his titles, <laughs> and um, at one time Thief was a kind of dark Camelot thing. That's Um, right. Yeah,
1: it was very medieval rather than steampunk, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, and uh, and you know the game like early on was kind of prototyped as a as a sword fighting game. I think it was supposed to be, you know, that's a perpetual um, PC developer's dream to kind of map a sword to the mouse and make that work, and it never really happened, and it didn't happen for Looking Glass either. But um, you know that project became Thief um and ken was you know the person there at the beginning building that world um but he didn't stay he uh he he and um two other looking glass employees is john che and rob fermier i believe who left to start a rational and immediately um got into trouble because the project they had was cancelled and looking glass said look you know, we've got this Thief engine, we want to make more use of it, why don't you make System Shock 2 with us? And effectively, Looking Glass incubated Irrational during their early days. You know, they were working out the same building, the whole sound design uh, of System Shock 2 was made by the, you know, the Looking Glass people who'd done it on Thief, uh, There a ton of, like, voices of Looking Glass staff in the game, so it really is like a proper... Uh, co-development deal, a real sort of passing of the torch before um, Looking Glass shut down. Not that they knew or intended that they were going to shut down, but that's how it ended up <laughs> happening.
1: I like how you left a pause after the names for me to confirm there, and I just didn't do anything. I believe it was Jonathan <laughs> Chay, wasn't it, Phil? Sure. Um, I do have a quote from Jonathan Chay which I think not only sums up uh, why this game is brilliant, but also... Uh, all games in this entire period, right? So retrospectively, um, talking about the uh, the development of System Shock Two, he says inexperience also bred enthusiasm and commitment that might not have been present with a more jaded set of developers. Mm-hmm. And I really, r- retrospectively, I really do get a sense of that. It's people just throwing in ideas without necessarily worrying too much about whether they can implement them with what we would now think of as AAA polish. It's yeah. just like wouldn't wouldn't this be cool? Let's see if we can do it. Uh and I, I always w I will always like meet a developer halfway, even now, who wants to do that, even if it's a little bit janky. And I it reminds me a bit of um Rare talking about Goldeneye. Not a PC game, but let's let's all be adults here. Um <laughs> the level design in Goldeneye is super weird, right? Because there's a a bunch of rooms that just do nothing. There's nothing in them, there's no objectives, there's like the critical path is like Maybe ten percent of each level, and when Rare were like building these levels out, they were basically mapping them to the movie sets in yeah. Goldeneye. So they want like it, they would that was how they went about it because they hadn't made a shooter before. Yeah, they, like, you know. Basically, it was only John Romero who knew how to make like a cool corridor shooter where things popped out at you, and it was like a fun roller coaster ride. Right at that point, yeah. And so Red just took this totally different approach, and we're like, "Well, we're making a game about the movie. We've got the movie to go on. Let's build what we can see in the movie, even though like there's a bunch of sort of superfluous areas to it. And yeah. that's obviously a treasured game. And and the um, singularity of that approach to level design, I think, is is I don't think is central to the experience, but it's certainly a fondly remembered aspect of it. And I think yeah. that, that Jonathan Che quote sort of explains um, that general ethos in the 90s, that it was a new frontier and you could just chuck in things without fear of judgment to the same extent that yeah. uh, that you might experience today.
0: Very much so. And, and System Shock 2 has its fair share of kind of like, oh, you don't want to invest in that skill because it's a mess. Broadly, you, you know, people will <laughs> recommend you don't use the, the psionics. Yeah uh but there were also some really smart decisions they made uh going in you know they knew that they had this engine which was made for thief where you you know fire an arrow once every 10 minutes it wasn't built for speed you couldn't really make a fast shooter in it and so they knew that they couldn't compete with you know id or epic on that level or um yeah, Valve, I suppose, at that time as well. And so they that's why the RPG elements kind of came into system shock at that time. They were going, well, we want this to be really considered um, slower-paced. We want you to be really kind of thinking about how you spend your resources, this really tight resource economy, and have it be more this kind of slow, thoughtful horror experience. I, I remember Ken Levine talking about... Um, you know implementing the machine gun in system shock 2 was just a ridiculous ordeal because <laughs> you know the thief engine is brilliant at um you know representing objects properly in a world that's what's amazing about system shock 2 and thief is they have you know this dense environment and you're picking over all this stuff uh, but it did the same thing with weapons you know rather than generating one water arrow to fire out of the the bow suddenly you're asking the, this engine to you know generate 30 bullets and and ping them out in quick succession and it's just it's just not built for this at all like they they had a real job kind just making that work so the whole deal was that they knew that they couldn't make um a shooter that would compete with the the best of the time, so they were playing to to the strengths of the the tech they had.
1: Yeah, and, and absolutely, what they what they did, but was all sort of built around atmosphere in that same way that Thief was, right? Like, I I don't really remember firing a weapon very often at all. In, yeah. <laughs> like if you were in combat, it felt like something had gone wrong or you'd, you'd made a mistake. It wasn't explicit. It's not a stealth game. You wouldn't say like, I don't think you could go through it without getting into combat quite regularly but no
0: it's it has like you know it, a lot of the, the kind of mechanics of Thief are there, there um, in terms of stealth and like sound in particular being a really important element you can hear you know if you hop down onto a deck and there's a clang and then you hear an enemy a couple of rooms over you know clock the noise and come over to investigate so that was a big deal, but also you know light and dark was a huge element of Thief, and the Von Braun is mostly an incredibly well lit environment. <laughs> so you know those those elements kind of got the window. Um, I do feel like stealth becomes you know it remains a consideration in System Shock Two, even when you become more powerful because the. It, nowhere is ever fully safe like enemies come back to environments that you've already visited and so when you're like well i just need to get to that chemical room on hydroponics floor then you don't really want to shoot a bunch of robots on the way there and, and lose all your ammo so you do end up leaning on on sneaking so it's, it's part of the equation but it, it's no longer kind of the, the central thing
1: i think that that sense of pace is absolutely central to the experience to me and i in, in a moment we'll uh we'll take a break before we get on to our experiences of replaying the game in the in the cold light of 2022 and, and we'll also be throwing our uh our review wars at each other in which jeremy and i produce a little uh radio play style version of uh what basically what we would write in our opening paragraph if we were mm. reviewing this for a games mag in situ in 1999 uh, we'll get onto all of that and and make the final judgment on on System Shock Two. But before that, I just wanted to throw in that like a- atmosphere is always the big one uh, f- for me in games, and it's really hard to talk about because it it's such a nebulous term. Like, what does that really mean? Uh, but I think the fact that you're experiencing the world so slowly in System Shock Two, for the reasons that you've just mentioned, like by necessity, uh, in in the way that the Dark Engine works. I think that's why I find, found the found System Shock 2 so atmospheric, because you actually have time to make sense of every room that you're in and to scan every detail of it. And it was incredibly dense uh, for the time. There were things to pick up. There would be uh, little text logs. There might be a voice log. There was always a dead body in every room, and that dead body would have something interesting that furthered the story. Um, it was a really early example, I guess, of what we would call environmental storytelling now, yeah. um, ad nauseum, in that e- even if it wasn't like a text log, it might be that um, you would see a dead body that was slumped in a way that looked like they'd shot themselves and you would find uh, a pistol and some pistol ammo in their inventory. And it would be just telling you a little bit about the backstory of that character, just through what was in its, what was in its inventory. Yeah. I think if you were experiencing the game like Quake and you were sprinting through Quake tells its story such as it is in in uh, really broad strokes because you're experiencing it at, at a sprint. So you're going like, Oh, it's medieval. Bang, 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 bang. And that's fantastic. I'm, I'm in love with Quake and I always will be, but, uh, what had such an impact on me as an as a impressionable 13-year-old wasn't just the big beats and showdown, but it was the fact that, yeah, I was uh, walking, creeping along. And maybe that's why I remember the names of these space stations, because I remember them room by room, because yeah. of the way it forced you to play. You, you were creeping along, and that gave you the time to really let the music do its thing with the lighting and to really consider... Uh, what the NPCs that you're stepping over had just been through before you got there. And I think when when I'm thinking about atmosphere, I think that's probably what I mean in this game. I don't know what your thoughts on that, Jeremy. Probably smarter yeah. than these.
0: You just reminded me of one um, one uh, dead body in System Shock 2, which is still uh, kind of smoking when you get there. Like there's a, an audio log nearby and this guy's clearly been shot. Over a kind of dispute around the the vending machine, and uh, and the fact the body's still kind of like this guy's chest is still kind of steaming suggests that this has just happened and that you know the 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 disaster of what's gone on on the Vaughan Bra- Braun is very very recent history. You know, like it's a game where you're kind of um, you're late to the party and you getting to know these characters through these audio logs, but it's it's all happened right there for you. And, um, you know, you, you you get to know certain personalities through these audio logs and then eventually, you know, find a body with their kind of final entry and, and realise, oh, this is the person that I've been listening to this whole time and this is the end of the little story within the game. And, um, you know, that's a powerful thing, something that we maybe kind of... Come to take for granted a little now. You get this kind of thing in um, Fallout, for instance, uh, an awful lot now. Um, but I think you know, System Shock was the first time um, that this was was done effectively, and it came from you know originally Looking Glass kind of playing to their strengths, where they it kind of came to realise that one of the 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 failings of the Ultima Underworld games was that you talk to these NPCs but then when you try to apply the this you know physics environment that they would created uh, to those characters you know you throw a fish at someone and they don't react and it kind of exposes all the, the <laughs> limitations of this of this simulation they carefully built and so you know this smart decision to kind of well, strip out all of the the living NPCs so that you've got that incredible simulation and you still have characters who go on journeys. They're just, they're already dead. So you don't, there's no way for you to kind of break that fiction um, for yourself. That's a really powerful and smart thing um, that, you know, really contributes to that atmosphere.
1: Definitely. I also found it really stressful at the time uh, because, being being 13 and like this was probably about 8 or 9 months into my journey into PC gaming. I wasn't really sure what was possible in games. I didn't, mm. you know, I didn't have an eye for like, oh, I'm in a game engine right now and like these are the things I can interact on. You know, after after a while, it doesn't take very long really. You get to you get to know like which doors to press E on because you can just see that they're the ones that will open. Like I was so far behind that that when I walked into a room and it looked like an NPC had just died, even though obviously that's done for for effect, it would stress me out because I was like, "Oh God, well, do I need to like reload the game? Is there a way that yeah. I could have got there and saved this person?" <laughs> yeah, and I remember feeling the same way in Half Life when all the Barnies are getting killed for comedic effect in the first few chapters that would really stress me out. And I'd be like, Oh, I could have saved them. There must've been a way that I could have stopped that elevator from plummeting down. And I could have <laughs> saved those barnies and they could be my friends. Cause I just didn't know how games worked yet. yeah. And I, you know, didn't realize that these were scripted events. I, I thought maybe the, uh, the, the boundaries are just way, way beyond what, what they actually are in, in actuality. And uh, in System Shock 2, I felt very personally responsible for uh, many cadavers that I found.
0: Yeah. And, and I still, I still hold you personally responsible for them as well. Well, uh, thanks, mate. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like obviously that's as you say, kind of inexperienced as a player. But I, I do think that's a characteristic of a few of the games we're going to talk about in this series. Is you know when the genres were less defined, you you weren't entirely sure what the the boundaries were, and you you were surprised sometimes by the things that could happen. Uh, and that's quite a, a kind of uh, special and electric kind of environment to enter into as a player, for sure. So that's a, a
1: good place, I think, to stretch our legs once more, listen to a bit more big beats. Uh, and then we'll get into our review wars, our opening salvos from the PC Gamer reviews that we never got to write because we were tiny children. Uh, and then we'll get a bit more into uh, our thoughts on playing System Shock 2 in the, in the modern era, um, shall we have a break and reconvene once again, Jeremy?
0: Nice. Let's do it.
1: So, Jeremy, we've had a little break. Um, Look, cards on the table, everybody. That little break has been several days. But in that several days, we've been playing lots of System Shock 2. um, And we've also, some might say even more importantly, made our debut Review Wars soundscape thingies.
0: Yeah. So these are, (laughs) what are they? They're, They're... We're imagining that we've each been assigned the review for for system shock two in situ as it were Is that the right term the exactly.
1: Time. It's a bit of an arch concept this, but it's like yeah we're, we yeah, I would have, would have loved to over-right. have been around in games journalism in this yeah, exactly. I would have loved to have been around at the time. I wasn't that can never happen. I will always I will remain twelve. time works that way. There will never be a 1999 when I'm not 12. So this is as good as we've got. We, it's, we're it's we imagining that we've been given this review. It's the lead review in this issue of PC Gamer or PC Zone or Edge or pick your games mag uh, of choice from the era. And so we're writing our opening paragraph.
0: Yeah, to get listeners into the, the mindset of a, a games journalist in this situation, if you get assigned a review review, of a game that you are you think is important or you're excited about, feels like a great honour, you're probably overthinking it from the moment <laughs> of assignment. Absolutely. And, and what comes from that is, um, you know, overly ambitious intro writing, because your intro is, <laughs> is your main hook. It's where you stick all the best prose, all the high-concept stuff and... Yeah. Um, I mean we're both maybe a little too experienced to to do a lot of this stuff in our, you know, in our actual article writing these days because we know it's going to be stripped out by any sensible editor. That's um right. but here we're going to be as indulgent as uh, as the very best game journalists were at the turn of the millennium.
1: I I think it was a more indulgent time, wasn't it? Like you could genuinely get away with the most extraneous childhood anecdote to tee up a review of System Shock 2. And I I think in some ways it's a shame that <laughs> yeah. att- attitudes of, of, uh, have hardened towards that, um, uh, that approach to writing, which perhaps doesn't hold the reader's time in the greatest respect. Um, how we're expressing these, we should say as well, this being an audio medium, and we're talking about writing reviews, is that we've done them as a bit of a, like a radio play meets a song. We've just thrown a bit of sound design at them so that they're... Um, they hit the ear in an interesting way, but these are fundamentally reviews.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say mine is a song exactly. It's more a sort of uh, monologue, docudrama. I don't know, but um, yeah, the, I, the way, I think only
1: Radiohead way... would describe mine as a song. To be honest, nobody else.
0: <laughs> 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 but I know you, and I, you you fiddle with production in your spare time. You noodle around on guitars, and and you know, songs do emerge from you. From, they call me uh, Noodles. Time time. Yeah. A lot,
1: of, a lot of people call me Noodles. Um, yeah. I was I was in a band uh, that formed in, in Southern California in the 80s in the punk scene. Um, played guitar for them for, for many decades um, where I went by the name Noodles and then I decided that actually the real money was to be made um, writing uh, about Dragon Age origin. So I left The Offspring and I've done this instead. Who wants to go first? Um <laughs>
0: I I don't wanna be upstaged. I wanna go. I want I want uh, okay. you to listen to mine first, uh, so that listeners are whelmed rather than underwhelmed. Okay. So let's go with that.
1: Is there is there anything you would like us all to know about this before we listen?
0: Uh I um I started it, had a breakdown, bon appétit. Took me all afternoon. <laughs> There's something about fiddling around in uh, in Audacity, <laughs> fading things in and out, recording bits of game audio. I got really into it. Uh, you know, I'll get better. That's what I'll that's what I'll leave <laughs> listeners with as, as a thought. I'll get and without better. Without
1: further ado, Jeremy's review wars.
0: In the offices of Looking Glass, there were a couple of interpretations of what the robots were saying in System Shock. <laughs> It's deliberate gobbledygook, an approximation of human speech that's meant to fall disturbingly short. If you hear any specific words in there, then it's a kind of Rorschach test, a reflection of your inner psyche, rather than true meaning. Still, one interpretation that floated around the studio was, your memos are never good. Once you hear it, that's all you can hear. I like to think that Ken Levine heard the same when he first played System Shock in 95. That, when he was given the chance to write the sequel, he came to it with a determination to write good memos. Audio locks.
2: Great. I've got to change the access codes out of Cryo A again. Like I've got nothing better
0: to do. The Von Braun is a dead vessel, but it has ghosts and they speak the recorded messages littered across the ship.
2: I think Grassy just likes to make work for me. I'll set the new code to 45100. That should be easy enough to remember.
0: Some hold their last breaths. When Dr. James Watts pressed recall on his autopsy report, he never imagined the squelch his splattered innards would make just seconds later.
2: The time is 16.30. Autopsy subject A. Watson. Now we're going to make the first incision in. Hold him down. I'm trying, I'm
0: trying. Others are unlikely love stories, snippets of a doomed romance, playing out on opposite sides of a sinking Titanic.
2: Don't stop, Rebecca. Keep moving to the escape pods on the command deck. We'll take off, set the toaster to wake us up in 30 years, and we'll be back on Earth before you know. A toast a to bill for two, baby. That's our next stop.
0: Then there are the conflicts, the power struggle between the dictator, Shodan, and a hive mind called the Many. A philosophical fight between the individual and the team. Fascism and communism. Either you disband that
2: yours or some real military is gonna come down there and walk all over your reddit if you do what we say you might have a chance to see the glory of the many comply or die sister it's that
0: simple system shock 2 is almost empty of npcs irrational games couldn't fill it if they wanted to the von braun is populated nonetheless haunted by the stories of the people who live there and whose bodies are still warm. An archaeological site just waiting for you to pick up your shovel and dig in. Good job Ken, your memos are really really good.
1: Right, well, what's happened there, Jeremy, is that you seem to have gone off and made an entire episode of This American Life produced to quite a professional (laughs) standard. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm sorry about that. Good, that's fine. Well, I feel absolutely fine about doing mine in a minute then. Um, I mean, wow. Uh, I think think the magazine that you've written the review entry for uh, there is Edge. That's the vibe I'm getting.
0: Yeah, probably, yeah. I mean in, in reality I'd probably cut down I wouldn't use all of the uh I don't know, as soon as it's a, becomes an, an audio medium, I want to use all the sounds and stuff. And I've, I've already slightly broken the concept. Oh no really? Because you wouldn't you wouldn't write it quite in the same way to uh without those samples. But I think it'd be pretty pretty close to something like that. I'm
1: just imagining the samples being in italicized writing, and then it works. works absolutely
0: fine. All right then, yeah. I I'll mean, you uh, I'll take that to Tony Malt tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I mean, you'd still lop out the first paragraph, but that's that's yeah. the, <laughs> the editor's <laughs> mandate, isn't it? Um, okay, well, that was Jeremy's episode of uh, of Review Wars. Um, what should I say about mine before we? Um, I'd say it probably slightly got away from me. What I was trying to convey was uh, something of the tribalism about uh, around shooters at the time, and this like this best game ever, this new best game ever that came out every year. That was very mm. much part of the culture, and it would be referenced whenever a new big game came along. Uh, I wanted to uh, do something that sounded cool, and <laughs> what else? I think that's all there is to say about it. Really, I can't. I can't big it up any more than that. Um, I'm excited about it. the
0: words, uh, and I'm especially especially excited about the sounds. Is what I'll say.
1: I'd be much less excited about the words if I were you. Okay, <laughs> here we go. This is my contribution to the review wars.
2: Look at yourself, chasing after the next big shooter, driven by pure animal instinct for bloodshed and circle strengthening. You can't even comprehend a piece of software like this. It's not in your nature to stop and consider what you're doing. To set a trap for the Cybermonkey who's been pursuing you through the operations deck using the incendiary grenade you got in a storage room that you hacked into. To unlock your mind. Harness its full potential using psionics and a weird ball connected to your wrist. You're probably too busy sprinting towards the next enemy, hungry to unload more ammo. What are you running from? An environment as immersive as this is wasted on you. You, my child, are conditioned not to notice all the details around you. It's in your DNA, Quake fandom. It eats away at the genetic code of everybody exposed to it. These people don't know the meaning
0: of the word immersive.
2: Shall we educate them?
0: <laughs> that is everything I hoped it would be. And... uh and if I'm, I'm honest, expected not to put too much <laughs> pressure on you, but I've done this kind of thing before, and oh, it was great. I uh, I think from the moment uh, the listeners voted for System Shock 2 for this episode, it was a foregone conclusion that you would do Showdown voice. At some <laughs> point, yeah, it's and, low uh, hanging fruit, isn't it? I've been looking forward to it. At the the very beginning, I genuinely didn't know it was you. I thought it was an actual. Click from the game for a few seconds
1: which is uh, <laughs> absurd and, and then uh, you heard the the actual content and you thought why would ken levine write this, this is a strange <laughs> non-secretary i i
0: you've you i you've tapped into something there and like the um in the 90s you know when levels were made by one designer typically there was a really sort of antagonistic relationship between player and developer you know not in terms of shouting at them on the internet but in terms of you were aware that someone had sort of devised a load of traps for you specifically and you kind of felt their eyes on you in a way and, and Shodan is just like the perfect embodiment of that and mm. you've, you've, you've could totally married those two things which were definitely connected in my mind so that, that makes an awful lot of sense to me I also, I think, um, sorry, go
1: on. I think you've uh, made that sound a lot a lot nicer and cleverer than I think really what I was thinking <laughs> is like, I think the best way to get somebody to play System Shock 2 at that time would be to antagonise them slightly and be like, are you yeah. smart enough for this game that's like a bit of an RPG as well? And yeah, I do remember so that being sort of the tone at the time as well.
0: You're negging 90s teenagers. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's, yeah that's, that's just what I know
0: i uh i was um listening to an interview with uh i think it was greg lapiccolo who who um did all the showdown post-production for original system shock and he went on the second one as well and talked about it just being a, a much bigger undertaking than he'd initially understood like all the manual sort of like cutting and elongating and I'd, I can only imagine you've been through a sort of microcosmic version of that yourself. Putting this together,
1: <laughs> I think it's probably a lot easier to do it in 2022 than uh, than circa 1994. Um, if anyone is interested, it's uh, I've I've used Auto Tune to pitch up my voice, and then I've duplicated that voice, and then I've pitched the other one down a little bit. I've put a beat repeat delay on one of the tracks, so you get those like bah, 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 those glitchy bits, um, and then a phaser. And then a bit of like ambient sound from from the game. Whereas I think nice. probably we switched
0: what, to a totally different nineties magazine. There didn't we for a second? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Mix
1: Mag Monthly Podcast. <laughs> um, so, well, anyway, look, that's that. Um, I consider that a humiliating defeat. But um, let us know what you think. Maybe Samuel or Matthew will will formalise this into a, a vote, uh, like a poll that you can actually vote on, and. Um, yeah, why not? Something categorically decide.
0: Get resentful about over time.
1: I already feel a little bit resentful, mate. You were like,
0: oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to oh, do this rubbish all I, thing. All I did, all I did, was make <laughs> it twice as long as yours by accident. Yeah, but you happened.
1: added so much content that was like about the game, and I felt like I learned stuff about the game. And there was insight in it and all that, and I, I feel right. betrayed. Whereas I was just like, it doesn't showdown sound like this. And that was my point. Really. <laughs> yeah, but she does. <laughs> she does. <laughs> In it though. But anyway, <laughs> that was review wars. Jeremy, let's move on. Um, while the the acid is is still fresh and hot on my skin from that defeat um, that I've perceived before, obviously there's even been a vote. Uh, yeah. We've maybe it'd we've be been...
0: a, a worm carried toxin, just for you know uh, thematic oh. sake.
1: that's good i like how you folded it back in uh and speaking of we have both revisited this game um very recently let's let's dig into how it stacks up in 2022 versus our original memories. so you didn't play this until a few years afterwards um yeah how did it hit you now and and how did that like how did that change those original memories
0: it still really stands up doesn't it i think um I think I played Bioshock first, weirdly, and I always expected from the way people talked about it that System Shock Two would be. Um, it is. It is. It is a more hardcore game, but there's so much. Um, there's so much of what Bioshock is already in there. Um, we we both mentioned in chat, didn't we? The um, uh, replicator machines. The the oh yeah devices you respawn in after death. I always assumed that that was something in Bioshock that was like a sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a concession to new fans. You know, this will make this more approachable. But no, it's something yeah. that's in there because it was in System Shock 2. And Absolutely,
1: this... yeah. It feels like a, an arcade touch. But actually, yeah. it, and and I, I obviously I would have like been through that replicator many many times. The first time I played System Shock Two without ever thinking like this is a bit arcadey. You're making this about accessible. It never feels like it's throwing you a bone this game, uh, and yet that mechanic is absolutely carried over from uh, from System Shock Two to Bioshock. In, in and in that situ, it it hits different.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. At first, it struck me as like oh, it's sort of arcadey, but. No, I've played an awful lot of System Shock 2. It, it feels like one of many touches designed to fold everything into the fiction of the world, including dying, which is traditionally, you know, the one moment in games where you just completely pulled out of it. And um, this, the thing it has over Bioshock and especially the later Bioshocks is a, an incredible kind of uh, uh, permanence, I guess like you there's a, there's a linear story progression to System Shock 2 you know it's a it's a Ken Levine story um it's you know his his first as a an author type figure um you know the um he was lead writer wrote nearly all of the the dialogue and it it is that audio log told story where you've got dozens and dozens of pieces fragments of of kind of memos and conversations and together they tell you the story of the place um but as you kind of ascend up the von Braun from bottom to top you it's not like um it's not just a set of levels that you go through once it's not a roller coaster ride you have to backtrack quite a lot you have to hop between uh, different decks. There's always a reason. Like you'll find a code that takes you back to, um, you know, like a sort of weapons cache two floors below, or you know the chemical stock rooms. They're an amazing thing, aren't they? Like they're <laughs> yeah. these full rooms, which they're all differently shaped as well. One looks kind of like a broom cupboard. One's like an old library where you like um, you go up a, like a, a ladder to to look individually at all these different tubs which have like chemical element uh symbols on them and you're looking for the right ones to use in your research you find like chunks of alien or what have you or a a weird sort of viral weapon or something of that nature and before you can use it you need to research it so you're pulling these chemicals from the shelves and you're applying them to this equipment and then you get to use it but there are way too many chemicals to carry around at once because you only got this tight little inventory. so, And all the stock rooms have slightly different catalogues of chemicals. This is so mm. ridiculously involved, isn't it? But they, <laughs> <laughs> they require you to hop back and forth between decks because you're like, oh, well, there's no iridium on recreation decks, so I've got to go back to Medsci. And so there's all these little elements that kind of take you back and forth between different parts of the ship. And in the process, it becomes, you know, a place. It's not just a, a series of levels, which is really unusual for, you know, that point in time in games.
1: That's I think that's the thing that stuck out the most for me on replaying it as well. And in 1999, what, what left an impression on me were all the voice notes and the way it was telling its story. The ghosts, I thought that was cool. Yeah. And And, you know, I had this this sense that the story was playing out in a slightly different way than I'd experienced before, that I was stumbling upon something that had just happened and in the absence of actual people around, I was piecing something together through audio logs or from those information kiosks or just from the scenes or from whatever was splattered in blood, uh, like written in blood on a particular wall or whatever. That I barely paid attention to this time, I guess because it was so influential that every game in its wake for the last two decades has borrowed that from it. And I yeah. actually remember the writing being a bit better than it is. I think games like Soma have taken that and run with it so far that like, when you go back to System Shock 2, you're like, okay, cool, Like it's somebody telling you that the key code is (laughs) 0451 Um, but the yeah the level design is like absolutely labyrinthine and it does this exact thing that Bioshock does as well where you enter a new zone a new deck or whatever and you have to get through this big grand door it's always a massive door that like the the level design is like funneling you towards and whoever's in your ear um in this case, it's it's your mate who, well, yeah, who's uh, who's guiding you through uh, through the ship, Bolito. Uh They're telling you, like, oh, you need to go through this door. However, something's wrong, and I can't hack through the mainframe or whatever. So, what you you're ne- going you to have to do, you need to
0: flush the tubes or splunge the chip or something, something, yeah, something to do and... with the the workings of the ship.
1: Yes, and what that means is that you're going to have to visit every other room on this deck. And only then, like four hours later, will this door open. And by the time that door opens, you like you come back to it, and it's like revisiting a childhood home. You're like, oh my god, I've been doing all of this <laughs> so that I could open this door. And and like I really I remember, you know, that was such a trope in Bioshock as well. That happens like five times, and it was definitely born here. Uh, people who've played the original System Shock, maybe that was actually born in System Shock One's level design. I'm not to know. I was a a tiny little idiot boy at the time, so um, I didn't play it. But yeah, that that level design, I think that really adds to it being a place. The fact that you're revisiting things, you're starting to develop roots between areas. It's like you're living in this environment, and so you're developing a relationship with it. And yeah. I remember, I don't know whether I managed to do it or not, but the last time that I re- that I replayed this was in 2012, ten years ago now. And I got so fucked off with the chemical thing and having to go back to like, (laughs) you know, uh, it's it's almost like doing the identify spell. That's basically what you're doing, isn't it? In an RPG. Yeah, that's Um, a
0: good way of putting it. Yeah, you can't you
1: can't take the identify spell with you. So you have to visit the identify spell room. So I was like, fuck this. I'm going to put everything in my inventory that I can fit and I'm just going to carry it (laughs) over to the other. I'm going to consolidate all the like chemical rooms and have one mono room that has all of the chemicals in them. So whenever I need to identify something and I don't know whether I managed it or not. I don't know whether there's something that stops you other than the inherent like ball ache of having to traverse that many times and like leaving other things out of your inventory
0: um, but I like that. that. I, That's a, a very like immersive thing, thing, isn't it? It's the same as like people in the first level of, of Thief in Lord Bafford's Manor would pile up all of the uh, the servants and guards in one big pile in front of the yeah. fireplace or something like that. Stack, <laughs> stack all the crates in the level, and it's it's nonsense, but it's it's great because it's like it's it's your nonsense, and it's enabled by everything in this world being convincingly physical like that's what this game inherits from thief and using its engine is it's got you want to explore every room because they're covered in you know you're desperate for resources it's a very tight resource economy in this game so you're looking for your ammo and your hypos and all of this stuff but also there's you know magazines dotted over and uh and and just all the detritus of uh of of living areas and you go into you know there's a bar with a piano there's all these kind of research rooms there's um there's a brothel on the top floor uh, a sort of uh digital brothel of some kind there's uh, there's a mall you know and the sort of half domesticity of it is what's so exciting i think is it makes you believe that Oh, there's you know there's a there's a toilet ensuite to this uh, um, to this bunk bed room, and that makes sense because the crew lived here. It all it's not just a, a level designed to be fun to swing a shotgun around. It's uh, it's a place.
1: Yeah, I think that's testament to that's one of Ken Levine's sort of fingerprints, right? It's not just the like the double cross um, that he's famous for it's the he's really thought about the space and everything in it and developed this canon like the replicator is sort of semi-plausible in this universe and the UI is even sort of an extension of the canon like the yeah. I think the UI is sort of designed to look like you're, you're like a cybernetically enhanced person and this is how you see the world
0: yeah Shodan does this to you it's explained in the fiction she gets you know one of the kind of bots around the place to cybernetically enhance you for our own yeah. purposes. So it's all and um you know one of the things uh that system shock 2 inherits from looking glass is you know when they they designed System Shock around the annoyances they'd had making RPGs where they're like, well we've made these Ultima Underworld games and they have these cool Physics systems, and uh, you know, it feels like you have real kind of agency in this world. And the place it breaks down is when you have a conversation with someone and you have you know three choices of what to say or what have you, that doesn't feel real. And so, they built this world where everything is explained by the fiction and nothing can be broken because everybody's dead. <laughs> <So Yeah. that's... laughs>
1: Yeah, there's nobody to show them up.
0: Yeah, it doesn't the um the the game is designed to be mostly invisible, apart from the, the I guess the sort of RPG systems where you're upgrading your stats and whatnot. Um but even, you know, um the characters in the game talk about that. They they give you stuff and they these cybernetic chips and they say, Go uh, go knock yourself out. Upgrade yourself. Yeah.
1: They explain why there are 150 monkeys aboard a space station and why those monkeys are weaponized, and they explain why there are, you know, why the key key code has just changed behind a door and all these things where you probably wouldn't be marking the game down in your head if these things weren't explained.
0: Yeah. By the way, the uh, the monkeys came out of a recording session where uh, Ken Levine had a bit of extra time, so he just asked one of the uh, the actors to, um, I think it must have been a mocap session. Uh, to prance around like a monkey, and they built a whole is that true? Chunk of fiction around that. yep I feel like that's such a central
1: part of the game to me. Like that would be the yeah. second thing I would think of. In, I think like Showdown monkeys.
0: Yeah, they really and they did it uh, on a whim. Stick in the memory, terrifying.
1: Wow, um, but yeah, that I I see that as a real Levine thing. He's somebody who sits there and goes, "Well, why would like what would be all in order for this ship to actually function?" <laughs> Then yeah, you would need like an entertainment center. You might need a brothel. Like, where would they be positioned? He really just thinks about this on a on a really sort of microscopic level, so that um so that you don't have to. And like this, we, we've used the word immersive sim. Um, and like that's a that's a double barreled equation, right? Like, it has to be immersive. It can't just be this really interactive sort of sandbox for experimentation. Narratively. Yeah it's actually got to immerse you in it for you to care enough to start experimenting and i think certainly that's where irrational um flexes its muscles in in the subgenre and that's where system shock 2 sort of um lives long in the memory in in terms of sheer immersion but what Definitely. how would you rate it as an immersive sim in the in the broader sense like that i've just described somewhere where you can experiment you can play with the systems you've got real agency to go about one quite uh, quite vague objective in any number of ways and you can play around and Yeah. And be you.
0: Yeah. So Deus Ex is at the top right in terms of Yeah. Pure so. agency. Different ways to approach your situation that is the model. Um and Thief weirdly, like, although brilliant and a great example of the genre, doesn't actually you know, it's it's um it's quite restrictive, and it it's pushing you to play a certain way. You know, mm. it's a, one of the first stealth games as we know them now. And so it doesn't really. The last time I, I returned to Thief One, uh, I was I'd come right off the back of Deus Ex, and I found it quite frustrating that there wasn't really more room to to be someone else. But that was never the intention of that game. You know, you are you are a master she- master thief, and you're not very good at sword fighting that's the deal um, Yeah. so system shock 2 i think sits at the higher end of that spectrum you know it has that the stealth systems of thief are in here somewhere it's harder to use them i'll be honest but you can you can sort of stand very still as a as a monkey passes you and <laughs> half get away with it you know at least yeah, for a little yeah. while um But because of all these kind of RPG systems that Irrational layered into it, it becomes a very, um, you think very overtly about your approach to things. You have to invest in a certain path. Like I I invested in Psionics despite being told by everyone who's played System Shock 2 that you shouldn't do that. and I liked the idea of sort of throwing things around with my mind that doesn't really that's not really how it works in this nah. <laughs> it's a little disappointing like the the best thing in terms of psionic fantasy is the the pull you know you can pull an object from across uh a room towards you and it'll float through the air and you can it'll bounce off the wall maybe and you can catch it but there's no equivalent you know sort of push or anything like that and it's more a kind of spell casting system. You know, it's more of a, a sort of. There's a load of buffs, and I ended up kind of leaning into your pistols and your shotguns and assault rifles and stuff, but leaning on the psionics for kind of buffs and things. Like there's a whole, you know, weapon repair system in this game that's really important, right? I completely mm. circumvented that with the anti entropy psionic spell. And so before I fired a gun at any point, so long as I wasn't too panicked, I cast that thing and the, the gun didn't deteriorate. So you end up with this ah. kind of, these very particular, um, sort of, uh, synergies of abilities and stuff. Um, and I invested a lot in hacking as well. So I can hack the turrets, which is, you know, a, a cliche of these kind of games at this point. Um, but that's a really powerful tool in this game because you're, you know, you're working your way through tight corridors, and if you come up against a, a room with two rocket turrets at the opposite end, that's that's a real problem that you have to think your way around or through. And that was hacking, my hacking turrets is borderline
1: that. ascension, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, they're the biggest enemy in the game. Like, I think we we sort of touched on this when we were chatting on WhatsApp about it that the two worst things that can happen to you like the most life-threatening situations are an alarm going off or meeting a turret yeah if if you've got both in like in close proximity then it's basically game over and you're never really well equipped enough to deal with that happening and like there again narratively that's really consistent with the idea that you're actually battling the ship and its systems like the things on it are just a bit of a byproduct of uh of the ship's malevolence um and obviously Shodan's malevolence. So it makes sense that like the ship turning on you via an alarm and setting off this like secondary enemy. Um it yeah, makes a lot of narrative sense. Um yeah. I, I I think I found I was a little bit uh disappointed by its immersive system uh immersive sim like sandbox cred this time, if that makes sense. Like sure. when I last played this through in twenty twelve I went the psionics route as well. Um, and I think I sort of fondly remembered, like, setting a few more traps and being a bit more playful, erroneously. I think I might have just been, like, confusing those with ideas of uh, from memories of Deus Ex and, and, like, probably Bioshock and Dishonored and all sorts, whatever else, maybe even yeah. Thief. Um, whereas, actually, like, I, I replayed uh, Deus Ex this summer, and my goodness, yeah, it is still absolutely extraordinary for the the things that you can dream up and the sort of like Rube Goldberg machines you can construct just like flipping a domino on one side of a room and setting in motion this like incredible uh, sequence of events that ends up with a guard like one guard that you could very easily just shot in the head Uh, (laughs) you know a guard is now on fire and and like screaming and a camera's gone off and he's like set his mate on fire not sure if that yeah. can happen, but but you know what I mean. Whereas in <laughs> System Shock Two, there are incendiary grenades. Uh, there's not much in terms of like traps and uh, and sequences of events, which is quite yeah. a specific way to look at immersive sims. Granted, but uh, maybe, no. uh, maybe it's just me being dumb, right? That I I didn't find I was like really pleased with how i'd solved something it was either that i'd hit it with the wrench by the way like probably one of the more iconic melee weapons of 90s pc gaming mm. um or i'd hacked it uh or like later on in the game i had enough shotgun shells and i'd i'd shot it uh, and and that was that and really where the agency came in is like uh maybe a bit of route setting like finding some sneaky pathways around things like hacking into like, storage rooms to get a bit more resources, that yeah. felt a little bit optional. You know, you're going off the critical path and tooling up and returning to somewhere like a, perhaps a little bit overpowered, but maybe through lack of imagination or maybe just because of where the systems are and, you know, it's the dark engine and there's a lot of Thief DNA in this, like the animations. I think some of the sounds as well are pretty much carried over like-for-like yeah. like, from Thief. And yeah, that was a stealth game that wasn't supposed to be like approach this however you like, go in with fucking two swords and you know dual wield your way through Lord Bafford's manor. I think it was probably a little bit hamstrung on a technical level and I felt slightly restricted in that sense.
0: Yeah, no, I do think Oh, by the way, I I love the sort of the slow weapon swing that's inherited from Thief. It feels so yeah. desperate and, yeah. and panicky. <laughs> Oh, God. But, um, yeah, do you know what I think it is as well? as the difficulty. And, like, if you play, you know, sometimes you hear about people playing Dishonored for the first time and they, they're not really kind of familiar with that kind of game and they go, well, i just breeze through it. I don't really get it. Like, if you, you know, tackle those games head on, you can probably shoot your way through pretty easily. But, mm. you know, the best thing to do to get the most out of them is to to be playful about it and try things and what gives you the room to try things and succeed to be inefficient basically is a bit of lenience in the you know just how tough these encounters are whereas in system shock Two you really are up against it a lot of the time and um i did feel like a lot of satisfaction from choices choices i've made in this game but they were choices about those kind of combos of abilities that i was proud of of coming up with because they would you know let me save my ammo or keep a weapon that might otherwise have broken and and those things once you've kind of locked into them you do those things the same way because that's your way of of overcoming something um I think generally in this game if you if you try to kind of like muck about too much with getting rid of a turret, then you're gonna be dead, aren't you
1: yeah i I think you've hit on something really like uh, really distinctive about system Shock Two in the immersive sim um space is that actually like it's it's a survival game, not in the modern sense where you're like you know managing a hunger and thirst meter. Yeah. But you really are made to feel that you're just scraping by at every point, and like it's a horror game as well, right? Like that's the atmosphere. It's not. It's not sheer sci-fi. Like it's the fact that you're in the future and that you're on a, a spaceship is sort of incidental. Really, it's a it's a horror game. It's an adversarial like tête-à-tête with a like a really novel and articulate horror antagonist. So, yeah. you can't ever really feel as soon as you do have that sort of, um, that same tool set that artist's easel that Dishonored gives you, you're not scared anymore. I was never really scared yeah. or felt overwhelmed in, in Dishonored, and the same sort of true in Deus Ex. It's a really difficult game, but you always feel like you're basically in control of the situation. And if you do hit some wall of difficulty, it's because you're overstretching yourself with your ambition, you're trying to be a bit too cute about meeting the objective, whereas here yeah. you're always just scraping by, your health is never full like you go back to the <laughs> like the med bays and you heal yourself and then 20 seconds later you're on 7 health again and you're just like, that's informing your decisions like well I simply can't go down this corridor because there's a turret there and I know it's going to at least clip me and all I've got yeah. is like a clip's worth of turret in me so.
0: That's that's part of the permanence isn't it and the, the mapping of the ship that you do in your head is when you get one of those you come to one of those surgical machines that heal you fully and you have to activate them don't you, you have to put in a particular chip so you yeah. kind of select the ones you're going to use and then you go right I'm going to remember where this is because I'm going to be needing to come back to it because if you don't you'll be using up all your medical hypos and you can't afford to buy a load more because they'll come from the same nunite currency that everything in the game relies on you know from Squeezing out of vending machines, there were there were points in the game where I I had loads of nonites because I was hacking all these containers and I thought oh this is great, and I took it for granted and then I would end up in fairly dire situations with no anti armor ammo or any of this stuff and um and struggling genuinely struggling and like you say it's it really is it's a survival horror game
1: yeah. Yeah, Shinji Mikami, f- fingerprint all over this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, that's that's our uh, current experiences with it. Um, shall we stretch our legs once more, listen to a little bit more of the soundtrack, and then decide whether this game passes uh, through 90s Games Court and does indeed deserve enduring status as a classic? Let's do it. Okay, Jeremy, well, we're back again. Um, and in this final little chapter, I think it's time to reassess the game uh, and to contrast our memories of it and the collective memory of it with the reality of playing it right now. And ultimately, we're deciding whether this game deserves its place in the Pantheon or, or whether it's uh, sentenced to um, irrelevance or something in the game's court to stretch the metaphor to uh, to its elastic limit. Um, so... I mean, first of all, how well regarded do you do you think this game is? In my head, it's like probably like uh, almost up there with Deus Ex, but that's some of that is probably fondness and nostalgia.
0: I think it is very well regarded. Yeah, I think it's um, you know if you we we'll, we talk about Looking Glass and the immersive sims of the nineties, how many of those are people actually going back to play? I think it's the ones in the the latter half of the 90s really skirting up to the millennium it's it's the first two thief games it's Deus Ex and uh, and it's System Shock 2 so it, it really is one of the kind of like um biblical texts of this genre right?
1: <laughs> that's my sense as well and it's also one of my personal favorites just because it hit me at such an impressionable age and you know this era in general was just so exciting and i think It's also like in 1999, we were all absolutely obsessed with the the future, right? Like everything had the suffix 2000 and like every album cover had the slightly metallic sheen to it. And we Mm. were just all like wrapped up in this like very 1999 breed of futurism. And I think that really bleeds through in System Shock 2. That really uh, embodies the very specific and now anachronistic vision of the future that we had at that time. And that really heightens the experience. Um, so I think my my take on it, I would be very much um, acting in the defence for System Shock 2. Although I was a little bit disappointed that it didn't give me quite the systemic depth that I remembered, um, I was struck by so many influences throughout the last couple of decades. Um certainly Bioshock as we've touched on as well. Soma. Um Prey, the twenty seventeen Prey almost yeah. feels like a like for like remake. Even things like the item fabricators in Prey, I'd forgotten that they were from System Shock 2. And like audio logs have been in literally every game since. Like I'm pretty sure they're in FIFA this year. Like it's such <laughs> it's such a pillar um that I I think it absolutely deserves its status. I don't think it's underrated. I think it's probably about correct, right? Yeah. Um, and it it's also genuinely enjoyable to play right now without too much faff. I mean, well, perhaps you can talk a bit more about that because I played it on an actual old beige PC. Um, but my understanding is it's still pretty easy to play on modern systems.
0: Yeah, uh, probably less... Tweaking than I had to do with uh, Deus Ex when I last played that a couple of years ago. I think it was ready to go from Steam, and you know, works well in widescreen. It there's nothing there's nothing about it that feels. You go back to the original system shot. This is why it's being remade. It feels incredibly anachronistic, and this doesn't in yeah. the same there's way. No, there's
1: no mouse look, right? <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. The mouse look was like a mod after the fact, so yeah. that's pretty hardcore.
0: It is. I I feel like, in my head now, going back to it, this game is, you know, the Bioshock games aren't just spiritual successes. I just think of them as the same series now because those mm. games, you know, they, they're set in fundamentally different worlds, but they share mm. the themes and they share the distinctive, you know, uh, authorial touch of, of uh, Ken Levine, not to... Um, you know, underestimate the contribution of everyone else on the team. John Che was project director on System Shock Two, not Ken Levine. But um you know, that that sort of ideological struggle that I referenced in the review was um Ken Levine being like a kind of uh you know, he's a skeptic at heart, isn't he? He's a, he's an individualist and System Shock Two is really his getting to grips with the idea of um of the many as a you know collectivist thing he's 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 trying to figure out okay what's good about being on a team what's good about being <laughs> in an organization or a church and and you know when he designed Thief's world the the church was sort of the enemy the hammerites and here he, he 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 creates this really sort of interesting um contradiction with the many in that they, they look and sound disgusting. They're horrible, you know, they've like uh these moaning former humans and this sort of horrible biological mass coat and everything and Shodan shares my disgust, she talks about how disgusting that is. But um <laughs> the many, they're having a they're having a fucking great time. Like they're they get it. shit done. Yeah. They get shit done. And when and when you hear them speak about it the togetherness, and they talk about, you know, sometimes when they hear you, they say, "Oh, you are not of our song." In yeah. the collective consciousness, they're they're all singing together in this beautiful choir.
1: Sounds alright, doesn't uh, it?
0: Yeah. Sometimes so,
1: they ask you, "Are we one now?" Yeah. And that's, <laughs> it sounds like being one wouldn't be that bad, actually. Like yeah. they sound pretty chill about it in that moment.
0: You're like, "Well, yeah." When you're you're under such kind of pressure constantly in this game it doesn't let up and the idea of succumbing to the many some at some points sounds quite nice but yeah that's a very levine thing to kind of give these ideologies a fair shake and then kind of come down on on what he thinks you know what the problems are with this and that's exactly what he did with uh with bioshock with um you know this kind of free market stuff and in uh, infinite with a kind of um sort of biblical hierarchy and uh authority so it's it's very much of a kind with the bioshock games in that way um and in how they play to a degree um you know especially with the first one the first bioshock i do actually I think there are some really strong um, mechanical additions in Bioshock that do change things. And so they bring about some of that kind of um, surprise and ability to set up traps and that sort of thing that you're talking about being missing in System Shock 2. You, yeah. You know, but having the big daddies roaming around, that's just an extra layer. Like, you have those situations where you're like, right, there's these turrets I need to get past... And there are these splicers, but there's also a big daddy who may or may not be in that area once things kick off. So you can have them show up and, you know, turn the tide of a fight against you, or they might end up kicking off at the splicers, or you can plot to, you know, set up kind of tripwires and um, hack turrets and this kind of thing at a particular point in a big daddy's kind of patrol area and um and take advantage of that like that that is missing from system shock 2 so i i guess there's a kind of um yeah in a way you know bioshock is often spoken of as like oh it's sort of a a narrative upgrade but a mechanical downgrade from system shock 2 right but i don't think Mm -hmm. it's quite as simple as that like there are some really smart ideas that came through later no
1: the The plasmids and the big daddies definitely give you more in the way of starting those chain reactions that I was talking about earlier on. And actually, I hadn't really thought about the direct relationship before, but as I've mentioned previously, the holding a weird ball that's like, you know, that you're just outstretching your hand as if presenting this ball towards your enemies. Like, that that begins in System Shock 2 with your little psionic ball thing. And, like, that's plasmids as well, right? Like, that's... Plasmids are just like a, a fleshing out of that system that they wanted to implement with, uh, with the sci-up stuff, um, yeah. in System Shock too, and it's it's just all about watching a big fleshy sort of uh, it's like Michelangelo's hand. Hands in Irrational's <laughs> games are always dead muscly, aren't they, and like statuesque.
0: Yeah, you but never also see a slender like hand falling apart. Ever since that Bioshock trailer mm. with the the bees, was it bees? There are um, bees, yeah. Yeah, coming out of the, the bee wrist. plasmid. Very good. good.
1: Well, so uh, I take it then that you're also uh, falling under the uh, for, for the defence of System Shock 2 in 90s Games Court.
0: Yeah, it feels of a piece with the, the later sort of noughties games I love that came from it. It doesn't feel like we're just studying an academic text, you know, and appreciating where things came from.
1: Yeah, it's, th- it's still genuinely really enjoyable, really atmospheric. Um, really easy to uh, to lose yourself in that world and to, yeah, to just appreciate um, how much thought has gone into quite a small and dense space and how much universe there is around it. Uh, in terms of mods and things, like in the orbit of this game, I-, I wasn't able to dig up a whole lot and I don't remember there being uh, a big modding scene around it at the time maybe that's just i there were some thief mods so maybe it's possible in the in the dark engine but uh certainly no new experiences like there are things like widescreen uh patches and like hd texture packs um you know that's that's like on the eye of the beholder isn't it i think i'd always rather see the original and and like for maximum nostalgia value um yeah it's same
0: it is weird that isn't it the like The whole fan mission culture around Thief and that doesn't extend Mm. to this for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, maybe I'm misremembering that there was like a level editor or something in Thief. There's some super easy explanation for it. But um, yeah, I don't remember a bunch of like uh, a bunch of mods that were like offering new experiences rather than trying to fix something.
0: Yeah, I think if I was a modder, I would think of like, well, Thief is built around around the idea that you're only ever seeing a tiny chunk of this metropolis the city, and there's tons of mystery and unexplored corners to it. I think I'd feel a lot more comfortable making something to go into that world, to just kind of set it adrift on that, rather than well, System Shock 2 is the entire world uh, of that game is accounted for, it's the ship, you see every single corner of it, and I think it'd be quite hard to make just a little slice and make that work within, you know, the System Shock universe.
1: It's a good point, isn't it? Yeah, it would would maybe feel like those Half-Life mods that just stretch the the Black Mesa universe a little bit too far. Yeah. Like, it's still sci-fi, but there was... I, I can't remember them by name, but there were a few that were still, like... They were using the assets, so you were in some sort of research facility, but it wasn't Black Mesa anymore, so it wasn't interesting to me at the time, and perhaps System Shock Two content would be uh, would fall victim yeah, to that same problem. I'm
0: always a little put off when I get that feeling because I feel like I'm maybe contaminating my memories of the main event a little, you know, like it might f- fiddle with my understanding and and appreciation of the the game proper.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of my Half-Life memories are playing some fairly subpar mods. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'd hold it in even higher reverence if I hadn't. I don't think I don't regret a thing. Actually, no. I thank you for all the subpar mods. These people are probably like, do you know what I mean? Making they probably made Cyberpunk. Like that was their first <laughs> mod, and then they're like at the very top of AAA game dev now because of that. So, no, yeah. no regrets at all. Um, so I think. Quite categorically, then we are we are uh, voting System Shock Two uh, into the pantheon of nineties uh, gaming gods.
0: Yeah, you can imagine that that big box being uh, shuffled onto that imaginary shelf now.
1: Yes, and now it's got like an extra little Game of the Year award, just a sort of meek thumbs up from from Phil and Jeremy to add to its other yeah. awards.
0: Someone in twenty twenty two can look at it and go, oh, "What? What was that magazine?" So I, don't know it's just shut down <laughs> um,
1: well that about wraps it up doesn't it um, but I've had a lot of fun uh, going back through System Shock 2 and uh, talking about it so i tell you what there's one thing more that I wanted to mention um, mm. since we first mentioned Eric Brosius I've had like a, a post-it note in my brain to say that we need to mention Terry Brosius as well who voiced Showdown And uh, I think the two of them as well were in a band and were quite avant-garde music artists.
0: I know all about this. I've been reading about this in the last couple of days. The band was called Tribe. Pray tell. The band was called Tribe. They were very successful in the Boston and New England area and not really anywhere outside that. And, uh, like, three members of that band ended up at Looking Glass. And uh, so Greg Piccolo was another one who was who was from oh, yeah. And so I think you know they they kind of the um, part of why audio is so central to those kind of to Thief and those immersive sim games. You know, sound is you know the primary sense of Thief really. Yeah. And um, and Terry was uh, still is uh, a really good writer of weird fiction. Like, she did a lot of the kind of Thief world building in addition to, you know, voice stuff and obviously being Showdown. Um, and then after Looking Glass, you know, some of those same people went on to join Harmonix. And uh, Greg LaPiccolo was the uh, project director on Guitar Hero. So Tribe ended up having a huge musical <laughs> influence on the whole world. <laughs>
1: I didn't know that. That's that's extraordinary. So yeah. Guitar Hero is actually like a, a, a full-blooded immersive sim. Yeah, it's an immersive in sim. In that sense. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, wow, what, what a note to end on, if you'll uh, forgive <laughs> the extraordinarily good pun. Um, we We hope you like this episode. This being the first episode, this is your chance to get in on the ground floor, give us some feedback and shape um uh the the series to come so yeah we'll take all feedback kind or really kind um, yeah it'll be useful uh,
0: we're not not sensitive but uh it will be appreciated and useful so yeah
1: yeah it will i mean it would genuinely ruin my week to hear anything (laughs) other than really effusive praise for this but it might make the next episode better so you know swings and roundabouts the next episode we're doing is going to be blade runner the 1997 westwood uh point and click um Mm. to my to my money the best bit of material in the blade runner universe but we'll discuss that on on the next episode uh so thank you very much for joining us uh and we'll catch you next time goodbye
0: thank you Bye bye